the two young men wade out into the long grass toward the pink and purple flowers. The only thing on their mind is how pretty the pews of their church are going to look, decorated by bunches of the blooms. At first, they think they've stumbled upon a bundle of clothes, but soon they realize their discovery is far more horrific than that. As they make it back to their aunt's car out of breath and horror-stricken, they can only manage to gasp, call the police. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 131, The Serial Crimes of Rian Stander. Now it's time for my tip about the latest series to catch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Monday the 16th of October, you can catch season one of It Takes a Killer. This is an immersive watch with 99 30-minute episodes that put viewers inside the minds and motives of cold-blooded killers. The series features experts from the FBI and Scotland Yard giving the inside track on how you sometimes have to think like a killer to catch a killer. You can watch It Takes a Killer from Monday the 16th of October at 8pm with a double bill every weeknight until the 21st of December on DSTV Channel 170 and Starsat 222. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Patrick Bate, Laura Atieno, and Laura O'War for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Kaba. Today's episode is a serial murder case which continues to stand out in the minds of those who investigated the case for several reasons. And many firsts and unusual circumstances 
surround the case. In researching this case, I used a chapter of Dr. Gerard Labaskakny's book, The Profiler Diaries 2, as well as several other academic resources. For a different perspective on this case, one that is of course closer to being on the inside of the investigation, you can listen to Dr. Labaskakny's podcast, Profiler Africa. This case is episode four over there. So let's get into episode 131, The Serial Crimes of Rian Stander. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. 23-year-old Nozolo Noyia lived with her parents in Mabaja, previously known as Port Elizabeth. She'd given birth to a baby in October 2006 and was trying to find her feet as a single mom. Nozolo did not have formal employment, and in her desperation to feed her child and help contribute to the family home, she turned to sex work. Nozolo's family was not aware that she'd become involved in this type of work and sadly would discover this information in the worst possible way. On the 13th of August 2007, Nozolo left her parents' home to go out. She told her mother she had some casual work set up and she'd be back the next day. She did not return. Two days after her disappearance, her mother reported her daughter missing, but she would need to wait several months before she received confirmation of where her daughter actually was. 28-year-old Lee-Anne Ronkhanger had just given birth to her youngest child three weeks before, when on the 24th of August 2007, she asked her mom Lillian, whom she and her children lived with, if she could borrow some money. Lianne also had two other children, an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old. Her mom Lillian helped to care for Lianne's children while she was out looking for work. Sometimes Lianne would come home with money and she'd tell her mom that she'd picked up a casual job or someone had given her money to help with the children. Lillian had never questioned where the money had come from, and she had no idea that her daughter, like Nozolo, had turned to the sex trade to bring in money to help feed and raise her three children. That day, Lillian gave her daughter her bank card. The young woman knew the PIN number, and Lillian watched as she tucked the card into her sock for safekeeping. Leanne kissed her mom goodbye and said she'd see her early the next morning. Leanne was never away for more than a few hours at a time, especially with the newborn in the house. She knew that three young children was a lot to leave her mom with, and Lillian appreciated that Leanne was always a present mom. When Leanne did not return on the morning of the 25th, though, Lillian was immediately concerned. She knew her daughter would not leave her children for very long, and to top it off, she had her mom's bank card, and she also knew very well that the money in her account was needed for the children. She would never leave the whole household without a source of income, if she could have helped it. With this knowledge, Lillian went directly to her closest SAPS station to report her daughter missing. Sadly, there she experienced something that many families of the missing initially experience. 
SAPS officers not wanting to take a missing persons report for an adult or older teenager because they believe the person will return soon and it's not worth the efforts they need to put in. I've said this time and again, and I think it's worth repeating. No SAPS officer is allowed to turn you away when you want to open a missing persons report for someone. It doesn't matter if that person has been missing for one hour. If you feel strongly enough that something has gone wrong that's resulted in that person not returning home or making contact, it is your right to open a missing persons case. Even if you don't have a photograph of that person on you at the time, they have to open the case and let you come back with a picture. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. And do not allow an SAPS officer who doesn't want to do their job to bully you into leaving without making that report. Sadly, Lillian Rondkanger was convinced to leave without reporting her daughter missing that day. She returned the next day on the 26th and was rudely informed that she should, quote, not make your problem ours, end quote, and was once again sent away without being assisted. Upon returning home, Lillian started discussing with her son and husband ways that they could start a search for Leanne on their own. Within hours, though, she would be visited by a police officer, but not one from the station she'd just been to, and not one with the news she'd ever wanted to hear. On the 25th of August 2007, two young boys asked their aunt for a lift to a nature reserve area nearby to pick some of the beautiful pink and purple flowers that were blooming as spring arrived in Ngabaja. Their aunt agreed and parked up along the road as the boys headed into the felts that backed up along Carnoustie Road in Linkside, an upmarket area in Ngabaja. The nature reserve area was fenced off from the backyards of the houses in Carnoustie Road by a razor wire fence. Backyards is a rather misleading term to use because really the land assigned to each home in the street stretched on much further than each resident actually used as their garden. As they walked, collecting flowers, what looked like a bundle of clothes caught their eye on the other side of the fence. The boys saw a black refuse bag and then clothing crumpled up, but then they saw skin and the bare buttocks of a female. To their horror, their eyes finally put the odd picture together, and they realized that they were looking at the body of a woman, with a refuse bag over her head. The boys ran back to their aunt's car and told her what they'd seen, not wanting to cause a fuss if the boys were actually seeing something else, a mannequin maybe or a toy doll. She went to check for herself, and was soon back at the car, as horrified as her nephews. The call about the discovery of a body came into Mount Road SAPS soon after. Detective Inspector Dion Hanacombe was one of the two detectives assigned to the station. He was a seasoned officer, and regularly handled about 100 different dockets at one time on his own. He shared a vehicle with another detective at the station. When the call came in, he was surprised at the location. 
Linkside was a low-crime neighbourhood, and he couldn't remember the last time he'd had a violent crime case there. When Hanukom arrived at the scene, he immediately noticed that the body, although out of view of the houses, down an embankment at the end of the garden, would have been clearly visible to anyone walking through the nature reserve area, which was a very common footpath for local residents. This meant that the body had surely not been there for much longer than 24 hours. The body also had not started to give off any offending smells, which also indicated the young woman's murder had been quite recent. There was absolutely no doubt that this was a murder, though, and likely sexually motivated, the detective believed, as he noticed the woman's pants were pulled down over her buttocks. Her panties were pulled up, but it didn't seem to the detective that the victim had done this because they were untidily placed. Forensics officers arrived to process the scene, and eventually the refuse bag which had been placed around the victim's head could be removed and bagged as evidence. It was then very clear what had killed the victim. Her throat had been viciously cut through. Hanukom noticed that there was no blood on the scene or anywhere in the immediate area and determined that this had not been where the young woman was murdered. There was no ID in the woman's pockets and her body was transported to the mortuary for autopsy. Although it is a really important part of an investigation, in South Africa, investigating officers hardly ever attend the autopsies of the murder victims whose cases they are tasked with solving. Really important information can be missed in investigations when this happens, as the forensic pathologist will not know what is and is not pertinent to a crime. It's their job to determine manner and cause of death and collect any other evidence they can from the victim's body, but that is where their responsibility ends. On many occasions, we have seen pathologists going far above and beyond the set of duties, especially as they understand the SAPS is also under-resourced, but they cannot do so on every occasion. In quite a few of the cases I've discussed on this podcast, where we've seen the IO attend the autopsy, We've also seen that action move the case in question forward significantly. And this case is no different. Detective Hanukom did attend the autopsy of the female victim found in Carnusti Road. The cause of death was confirmed as the victim's throat having been savagely slit and significant exanguation occurring as a result. The extent of the throat injury was rather uncommon in the pathologist's opinion. All arteries in the neck had been severed, and this is not usually the case when murderers attempt to slit the throats of their victims. A rape kit was taken, in the hopes that a DNA sample from the killer might be found. Inside the pockets of the victim's jeans, they found a stack of sealed condoms. This was the first indicator to Hanukom that their victim may be a sex worker. The victim was wearing two pairs of socks, and inside one of the socks was a bank card. On it was the name L. Rontkanger. 
Although the victim could have been identified by her fingerprints, that could have taken up to two weeks. Hanukom attending the autopsy sped up the identification of this victim significantly, and it undoubtedly saved lives. Hanukom went straight from the mortuary to the closest branch of the bank the ATM card came from, spoke to the branch manager, and asked for his help in identifying the person the card belonged to. The branch manager identified the account holder as one Lillian Rondkanger and gave Hanukom the woman's address. Lillian had just come home after being refused assistance by her own local police station when she was very surprised to see a strange man at her door who introduced himself as Detective Dion Hanukom. When he held up the bank card in the clear SAPS evidence bag, Lillian's legs crumpled beneath her. Later that day, Leanne's brother Nigel would identify her body in the mortuary. The victim found in Carnoustie Road was Leanne Rondhanger. Hanukom accepted that Leanne's family were not aware that she'd been working as a sex worker, but felt strongly that this was the case. So over the next few days, he took a photograph of Leanne he'd received from her mother and walked the streets of Kabacha, trying to get the sex workers to assist him with his investigation. For the most part, none of the women wanted anything to do with him. He was a police officer, after all. Eventually, after reassuring them that he had no intention of making their lives difficult, he just wanted to solve Leanne's murder, some of the women agreed to assist. He was able to identify the man who'd acted as Leanne's pump. The man told him that Leanne had usually worked from Govanambeki Road. She had been working on the night of the 24th of August, but no one had seen who she'd left there with. While Hanukom was doing his best to chase down any available leads in Leanne's murder, back in Carnoustie Road, two men painting the house at number 30 made a gruesome discovery. The men had been painting the house for two days, and on the first day they noticed a strange smell coming from the long grass at the bottom of the yard, but they discovered a bag of dog feces hanging from a tree and assumed the smell was coming from there. On the second day, the 31st of August, the stench was even stronger, and when one of the men went deeper into the garden to use a tap to wash his paintbrushes, he saw something propped up against a nearby tree, and upon closer inspection, realized he was looking at the source of the offending smell. As soon as the men confirmed that they were indeed looking at a human body, they called the owner of the house, who then dialed 10111. Members of the flying squad unit attended the scene, and one officer, who'd also been at the Leanne Rondhanger scene, quickly realized how close this body was to where hers had been found. The two victims were found just 432 meters apart from one another. The officer called Detective Hanukom to attend. Both bodies were found in an area which was essentially the backyard of the same house in Carnoustie Road. The area was not accessible to just anyone. 
the main gate was remote-controlled, and the side gates required a key to unlock it. Hanukom had considered this on Leanne's case, but the position of her body did leave the possibility open that someone had dropped her body over the razor wire fence somehow. In the case of this new victim, though, that was not a possibility. The young woman was only partially dressed. She was propped up against a tree in a sitting position, but her head was pushed down underneath her, so it was hidden from view. As forensic techs descended on the scene and the body could finally be moved, it became clear that this victim had an almost identical wound to Li-Anne Rondhanger. Her throat had also been slit. This victim, though, as the significant scent of decomposition attested, had been there for longer than Leanne had. The victim also did not have any identification on her. Her jeans were around her ankles, and in her pocket were several condoms and a lip gloss. Although the identification of this victim would take far longer than Leanne, her palm prints would eventually come back from home affairs as belonging to Nozolo Noyia. Nozolo's mom, who had already reported her missing on the 15th of August, was advised that her daughter was deceased. Due to the level of decomposition, a physical identification was not the best option, so a DNA test would 100% confirm Nozolo's identity. Again, Nozolo's family had no information to offer Hanukom about any sex work she may have done, as they'd had no idea she was involved in the trade. Hanukom went back to the women on Govanambeki Road that he'd spoken to about Leanne and warned them that they needed to be very careful. It had become clear to Hanukom that there was a serial predator on the loose. Dr. Gerard Labaskachny was the head of the SAPS's investigative psychology unit for almost 16 years. I interviewed him when he released his book, Profiler Diaries 2, in which he discussed this case. In that interview, I asked him about his experience with how the SAPS approaches violence towards sex workers and would such murders possibly be more difficult to solve because they would very often be stranger murders. So in general, SAPS's attitude, I mean, I, it's difficult to say because, of course, you know, you, you might, there could be anything from a, a sex worker going to a police station to report being raped. I would never even know about sort of those cases. I can, I can only say that the cases where we got involved, and which would, again, would be typically your serials, you know, we, we took it just as seriously whether it was a sex worker or, or not. I mean, a lot of the time we didn't even know who our victims were because they weren't identified. So for us, it never really mattered who the victim was, I, but definitely I would imagine for a lot of policemen, they don't treat them at all um, appropriately and dismiss them and dismiss their complaints and, and themselves are abusing um, sex workers. That's definitely definitely as in terms of a targeted group. And I always say, you know, nobody's career aspiration was to be a, sick, a specifically a street sex worker, you know, and people end up there because of terrible circumstances. And we saw in, in, in that chapter, you know, these, these people are little kids that they're trying to also support. So, for me, it was never an issue that these are lesser people, but of course, we have to accept that a lot of people in society do view them very, very differently and very negatively, and including police. 
So I can imagine, I mean, for various reasons, they don't want to go forward. I mean, you're involved in a criminal activity. Our law, you know, obviously currently says it's illegal, which makes you vulnerable to go to the police to report something. When you yourself are involved in a criminal activity, will you be taken seriously? So I think those are just some of the considerations um, that, that they unfortunately have to face and that they don't. I mean, I know after I left the police, one sex worker contacted me about rapes. She'd picked up herself being the victim with one particular client, you know, put that, in, you know, referred that to my old unit. And they eventually did catch the guy and, you know, get him convicted. And But, but again, she was very, very brave that she was quite comfortable to testify and for it to be known that she's a sex worker. But most people don't want to. So, yes, so investigating these kind of crimes can be more difficult because, like we saw in, in Rian Stunner's case, you know, people don't want to be seen as cooperating with the police. Um, you know, their pimps don't want them to. Uh, we're not sure sometimes if the pimp is the murderer. So there's, again, a lot of secrecy um, in that sense. And like you say, stranger cases, because there's typically no prehistory between these two people. Detective Hanukom soon moved his investigation to the property at which both victims had been found. The owner of the property lived with his male partner in the main house. Hanukom didn't feel, considering the profile of the victims, that these two men were a good fit as suspects. The other two people on the property were tenants who rented out two flatlets. One was a woman who worked as a nurse at a nearby hospital, and the other was a man in his early 30s who lived on his own. His name was Rian Stander. Rian Stander was 33 years old when he came onto the radar of Detective Hanukom. At the time, he was working as a long-distance truck driver. He had a 22-year-old girlfriend who still lived with her parents. Stander had lived with his girlfriend's family for a time when he'd moved to Ngobacha, and two months before Leanne Rontranger's body had been discovered, he'd moved into the flatlets in Carnoustie Road. His landlord said he'd had absolutely no issues with the man while he'd been there. He'd been quiet, had kept to himself, and he hadn't seen him have any visitors at his flatlet while he'd lived there. Prior to that home, though, Rian Stunder really had been in many different places across the country and worked in many different jobs. Stunder and his sister had been adopted but he hadn't known that until just over a year before he'd moved into the flatlet. When Rian had matriculated, he'd gone to work on his father's farm as a farm manager. It was there he started driving long-distance truck routes, transporting livestock. And that job was one that would be repeated several times in other contexts throughout his 20s and early 30s. In between, Rian worked a range of other positions, including as a manager with junk mail, at a service station, a Sunday school teacher, and as a security guard. It would also emerge that he'd had a few run-ins with the law, too. In 2002, he'd been found guilty of culpable homicide after he'd hit a woman with his truck and she died. He'd been given a non-custodial sentence for that crime, and clearly hadn't had his driving license revoked because he continued to work as a truck driver after that. In 2004, Stander was accused of assault. He went to trial and was found not guilty. Shortly before moving to Ngobacha, Stander had been working in Vintuk, Namibia, as a truck driver, when he was charged with rape. 
He was allowed to leave Namibia while he awaited trial, and as at September 2007, that case had not moved forward at all. Hanukom found Stander to be a serious person of interest in both murders, and on the 13th of September, he asked him to come into the police station for an interview. Rian Stander seemed to have no issue coming to the police station. He arrived there between 8 and 9 a.m. in the morning and soon settled into a chat with Dion Hanukom and another detective that Hanukom had asked to join him. His interview partner was strategically chosen. Derek Nosworthy had solved a few of Gabacha's most infamous cases, including another series of murders for which Stuart Wilkin, also known as Butibur, was found guilty and sentenced to multiple life terms. Nosworthy had also attended training in serial offender and psychologically motivated crimes, so Hanukom felt he would be an asset to have in the interview. Stander seemed very relaxed, and soon launched into a rundown of his entire life from start to finish with the two officers. Dr. Labaskakni notes in his book that this is an ideal format to take when interviewing a suspect about a suspected psychologically motivated crime. It's far better to build rapport by letting the suspect tell you about themselves and finding common ground than to jump straight into the crimes. And this is exactly what the interviewing detectives did. But Stando was far more into it than they'd anticipated. And by 3pm that afternoon, they hadn't even gotten around to mentioning the two murders yet. That in itself was a clue that they had their man. Because at no point that entire day did Stando ever ask why he was sitting in a police station talking to two detectives or whether he was suspected of anything. I don't know about you, but that would be my first question before I shared my entire life story with them. Eventually, Hanukom decided he needed to get to the points and mentioned the two murdered women who'd been found on the land on which Rian lived. The man's facial expression immediately changed, and he asked if he could use the toilet. Hanukom allowed him to do so, half expecting him to return and say he was not going to say anything more. But quite the opposite happened. Stander walked back into the room, his eyes filled with tears, and he asked Hanukom if he could speak to him alone. Nosworthy left the office, and Rian Stander admitted that he, quote, picked them up and did it, end quote. Now, this was far from a solid confession, as that could really mean anything in the context, so Hanukom pushed for more detail. He wanted to get Stander to the point of admitting that he had murdered the women, but also knew very well that a suspect's confession could not be used against him, as in South African law, a suspect's confession to an investigating officer cannot be used as evidence. They must confess to a magistrate, and any pointings out must be done with an officer that is not affiliated to the case in any way. As soon as Hanukom got Stander to the point of admitting he had murdered the woman, he stopped him and asked if he would be willing to give a full confession to a magistrate and do a pointing out of the various scenes with another officer. 
Stander agreed. Unfortunately for the pair, the country was in the grips of an exciting Rugby World Cup and they could not locate a single officer that was available to conduct the pointings out. Although they didn't really want to, they had no choice but to leave it for the next day. Rian Stander was arrested on suspicion of two counts of murder and kept in the holding cells overnight. As was his right, he was given the opportunity to make a telephone call, and he used it to call his girlfriend. It seems he may have told the woman that he was being wrongly accused because her parents arranged legal counsel for him overnight. The next morning, bright and early, Sander was taken from the cells and transported to conduct the pointings out. After he'd left, his attorney arrived, demanding to know where his client was. Hanukom said he didn't know, because really he didn't know where Stander would take his colleague for sure. Soon, he realized that he would be violating Stander's right to legal counsel by not at least sharing where the crime scenes in question were in case Stander was at one of those locations. Stander's attorney did manage to locate his client in time and insisted he stop the pointings out immediately. The opportunity to gain an on-the-record confession was thwarted. With Stander under arrest, the other residents of the property in Carnoustie Road were horrified when forensics teams descended on the property and took control of the flat that Stander lived in. The teams would comb through the home carefully, returning on many occasions to use alternate methods of evidence collection to ensure they had everything they could find. Among the evidence discovered there was a kitchen knife and several other items which a scent detection dog reacted to. Blood was found in the bath, which was sampled, and one very sharp forensic tech noticed a crumpled-up refuse bag on the kitchen counter, which made him think about the bag that had been around Leanne's head. Up to that point in South Africa, comparisons between plastic bags of this nature had not been successfully used as evidence in court, but the tech knew it could be done, so he collected this too. In all, more than 100 exhibits would be collected from Stander's home and 916 photographs would be taken of various items. Rian Stander successfully applied for bail. He asked that he be allowed to stay in Ranfontein in Gauteng with his family while he awaits a trial, and this was allowed with some strict conditions. He would have to report to a police station three times a week, he was not allowed to travel anywhere except to Kabacha for his court proceedings, and he had to tell Hanakom when he would be leaving Randfontein, and his passport was confiscated. When I first read about this case, I found it odd that Stander, as an accused serial offender, had been released on bail, and I asked Dr. Labaskakni whether he thought this was because the victims were sex workers and therefore represented a small part of the general population. No, I mean, in the court, I mean, it's not impossible that the court could have felt that, but of course the court could never say that because people are people and they're respected what your job is. 
So I think, look, I mean, when I first heard that, he, when I got involved and I heard he's on bail, I mean, both my colleague, Colonel DeLonge, Jan DeLonge and myself had like literally heart attack, like how? But when you hear how the case unfolded and the fact that at that point they had no evidence against him, you know, he was, he started to, started the sort of confession, but then the, the pointing out was sort of interrupted. So we had nothing. We didn't have a formal confession. And unfortunately him just telling the cops that he did it is not admissible in court. So we had nothing at that point, or they had nothing at that point, which actually directly linked into the crime. So yes, we, we have possible blood, but possible blood isn't confirmed blood, and it's not confirmed blood that belongs to one of your victims. You have to do DNA analysis. So at that point, I mean, I do understand, you know, would we have tried to do it differently? Yes, but I think I understand at that point that, um, you know, they, they really had nothing to actually say there's a good strong case against this guy and that is a reason to give someone bail as if there's a weak case by the state and there was nothing at all all hinged then later on the forensic uh, information like i said if they'd managed to get the pointing out done that would have been definitely a, a clear tool to use to oppose bail and in fact it was even sort of by gutsy of the prosecutor to to agree to put put the case on the on the roll for for bail purposes because the prosecutor could have said look there's nothing here Oh, I'm going to withdraw this against this guy. And when you've got enough info, you know, then come back to me for arrest, arrest warrant. But I think Dion Honnacombe, the detective, who was really, really an amazing detective, said, no, he pushed it, convinced the prosecutor, because then at least we have bail conditions and we know where he's going to be. We know where he's not supposed to be. We know what he's supposed to be doing and what he's not supposed to be doing. And if he transgresses that, theoretically, you can uh, pull, that, uh, pull that bail back in. Now, another reason I was concerned when I read that Stander was let out on bail was because we know from significant research and data that serial murderers do not stop offending. They may take breaks for various reasons, they may move hunting grounds, they may change modus operandi, but unless they're in prison, dead or otherwise incapable of offending for a physical reason, like we saw with the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo in the US, who stopped offending only because he became too old and weakened to overpower his victims, by his own admission, they do not stop. This was a concern for the SAPS when Stander was released, and Dr. Labaskakni actually became involved with this investigation because there were other series in South Africa and Namibia that fit Stander's patterns, that he thought might be linked. Hanekom also ensured that he and Ranfontein police kept a close eye on any murders committed in that area while Stander was there. But his DNA was compared to the unsolved series, and he was found not to have been the perpetrator in those crimes. In all, Stander would be out on bail in Ranfontein for almost three years, and yet he managed not to reoffend, at least in terms of murder. And I had to ask Dr. Labaskakni how he thought that was possible. Look, I mean, yeah, we do say these guys typically carry, and carry on until they're, you know, stuck in jail. But I mean, at the same time, you know, they're, they're not idiots. They know that the world is watching, that their family is watching, maybe the local police, etc., is keeping tabs on them. And if bodies start to pop up, they're going to be suspect number one. So, you know, they're not stupid, uh, but yes, you do wonder what was happening with that urge. Did he try and satisfy it in other ways? 
um, you know, in fantasy world, in sort of masturbatory stuff. But maybe he did pick up sex workers, do something to them, maybe not necessarily kill them. We, we don't know. And, and But nothing, we could never, ever link anything else. I mean, we had old series in that general area because he came up to Gauteng for his um, bail. He had to come back to his parents. I think it was to stay with his parents. And if we were looking into him then for being responsible for some older other series in those areas, but it was never DNA linked to any of those. Even after Stander was released on bail and awaiting trial, the investigation continued. It took a really long time for DNA results to come back, but the results did tie all of the blood found at the scene to Leanne Rondhanger. The knife in the kitchen drawer that the scent dog had reacted to had, quite amazingly, not yielded any traces of blood on the outside. But, considering it could have been the murder weapon, Tex opened it up and found traces of Leanne's blood inside the casing of the knife handle. It also emerged that this knife had been a gift from Stander's girlfriend when he moved into his new home. Although all signs pointed to Leanne's killer also being Nozolo's killer, there was no physical evidence that could tie her to Rian Stander, and prosecutors and investigators realised that this was problematic for several reasons. Firstly, they wanted to get justice for Nozolo, as much as for Lian and their families. But it was also vital to ensure that they could prove that Stander was a serial predator and not a one-off killer. If they only prosecuted him for Lian's murder, he could argue that he'd simply snapped and murdered the young woman and that he could be rehabilitated. Given the right defence, he might well get off with less than a life sentence. That, everyone involved knew, would be a death sentence for many other women in the future. It was clear that Rian Stander had been caught at the very beginning of what would have been a brutal and unending series of murders. Given how much he travelled and his job as a long-distance truck driver, he may well have continued committing crimes across the country and not been caught for a very long time. It was imperative to prove he was an unrehabilitatable serial predator who had to be imprisoned for the rest of his life and very carefully considered, if ever, for parole. It was at this point that the prosecutor in the case contacted the IPU and asked Dr. Labaskakni to put together a linkage analysis. A linkage analysis is a tool that can be used to show that the same perpetrator committed a series of crimes because of the similarity of geography, modus operandi, victimology, cause of death, and other factors. The linkage analysis links crimes to one another. It doesn't hazard a guess or make determinations about who might have committed the crimes. The prosecutor's job is to tie the accused without a doubt to at least one of the crimes, and the linkage analysis is submitted into evidence through testimony to then show that if the court finds the accused guilty of that one crime, then they are also, as a result, guilty of all. While evidence was being processed and prepared, an incredibly rare comparison was made in the SAPS laboratory. 
The refuse bag that had been placed over Leanne's head was compared in the lab to the bag taken from Stander's house. The bags were of the type that are on a roll and perforates it. The process used to manufacture these bags means that as the plastic runs through the machine, it is stretched and pulled by rollers, and each of those rollers produces specific striations in the plastic. If you go into your kitchen and pull out a roll of refuse bags like this, hold it up to the light at the right angle, and you'll see these striations that continue on from bag to bag through the perforations. We can see how those marks match up just by eye, but LabTex took it a few steps further. Tex used the same principles to compare these bags that they used to compare bullets to prove that they came from a specific gun. Amazingly, they were able to prove that the bag found in Stunder's kitchen was not just from the same roll as the bag on Leanne's body, but it was the very next bag on the roll. Although Stander did not reoffend in terms of murder while he was out on bail, he did behave in a way that's almost got his bail retracted. Stander began to sexually harass one of the female officers at Randfontein SAPS, where he had to report three times a week. The situation became so serious that he started following the woman and even left a teddy bear in her garden. Hanukom contacted Stander and warned him that if he did not leave the officer alone, he was going to be rearrested, and he would remain in jail until his trial started. I found this behavior to be interesting, because I pictured him almost as a pressure cooker, whose pressure was building up inside minutes by minutes over the three years he spent out on bail. He knew he couldn't commit murder or rape to release this pressure, because he was being very closely watched. But the pressure had to leak out in negative behaviours toward women, and it did so in his stalking and harassment of this female officer. Stander's trial eventually started on the 9th of February 2008. He pled not guilty to the two murder charges against him. Unfortunately, it was impossible to prove that the two women had been raped so the state could not charge him with that. Hanukom was quite surprised at how relaxed Stander was during the proceedings. When they were on breaks, he tried to start up conversations with Hanukom and the state prosecutors, and Hanukom eventually told him he should rather speak with his defense attorney during breaks. I'm not certain whether Stander's girlfriend's family continued to fund his defense or whether his own family took over the costs, but he had a private defence attorney who, interestingly, would also go on to represent Christopher Paniotu, who murdered his wife Jade, as well as the aforementioned serial murderer Stuart Wilkin. So he was certainly well defended from a skill perspective. When the trial got going, though, it was difficult to determine exactly what his defence actually was. His attorney did not cross-examine any of the state's witnesses. In essence, this seemed to mean that they accepted all the evidence that the state was presenting. When the trial was briefly postponed, the state told the court that after the postponements, they would be presenting additional DNA evidence, 
as well as Dr. Labaskakni's linkage analysis, which they said would serve to tie Stander to Nozolo's murder and prove he was a serial offender. When the trial was in its postponement period, the prosecutor received a call from the defence. Stander had decided to plead guilty to the two murders, but he had a condition. He would only plead guilty if Dr. Labaskakni did not testify, and the linkage analysis was not read into evidence. Labaskakni speculates that Stander may have done this for two reasons. Firstly, he thinks it may have been a power and control thing. The linkage analysis was the only thing that was going to link him to Nozolo's murder. And perhaps he didn't want someone else to have that power, so he decided to take back control. In addition, Dr. Labaskakni would eventually testify in the sentencing portion of the trial to confirm that Stander could indeed be classified as a serial murderer and that, as such, the chances of him being completely rehabilitated were very low. This evidence was not challenged at all by Stander's defence. Labaskakni believes that this may have been because Stander wanted to enter the prison system with the title of serial murderer, because he may have hoped it held some sense of power and that others may fear him because of it. Stander's guilty pleas were accepted by the state and the court, and he was declared guilty of both murders in May 2008. In the sentencing, only the state provided evidence in aggravation. There were no witnesses for the defence in mitigation. Stander's attorney had lined up a psychologist to testify on his behalf, but shortly before the sentencing hearing began, it emerged that the psychologist had withdrawn because they discovered that Stander had lied throughout the assessment and attempted to manipulate the outcome. Rian Stander was sentenced to two life sentences for the murders of Li-Anne Rondkanger and Nozolo Moia. Bizarrely, after he was sentenced, he asked the judge if they could give him two weeks bail in order to spend time with his family to say goodbye. The judge obviously refused the request and noted that this really seemed to indicate that Stander did not appreciate the seriousness of his crimes. In his sentencing, the judge accepted Dr. Labaskakni's evidence that although the victim count in the case was under the usual threshold of three to fit previously accepted definitions in the country, Stander was a serial murderer and should be treated as such when any parole considerations were made in the future. The ruling in this case was, of course, most importantly, justice for the two victims and their families, but it also sets a few important precedents for future such cases. Firstly, linkage analyses, although one was not actually presented in this case, gained further credence as evidence. Clearly, the defence understood the gravity of such a tool for their client. Secondly, it was the first time that the striation evidence in plastic bags was used in South African courts, which, although probably a rare possibility in future cases, is yet another tool in the bag, pardon the pun, of forensic technicians. And I also think it's pretty cool from a forensics perspective.
Of course, this case was also important as case law for future serial murder cases, where the offender is apprehended before they can kill more than two victims. According to Dr. Labaskakni, this was one of the fastest serial murder arrests made in the country to date. And really, this is in a country where, for the most part, we're already pretty good at arresting serial offenders after a series is identified. This really is what we want. We don't want 10 or 20 or 30 people to have to die before an offender is apprehended. So the excellent work of detectives and prosecutors in this case has helped to develop case law where arresting serial offenders early on does not count against the state in gaining an appropriate sentence. I think if we look back at Stunder's past, it's possible to pick up a pattern and some warning signs of a possible growing negative behaviour pattern. And certainly Dr. Labaskakni also mentions certain things that stood out for him too. While not everyone that works many different jobs in their life has any mental health or personality issues going on, it is often a sign of an unsettled mind. And Labaskakni says that he's seen many people with significant psychopathic traits jumping from job to job throughout their lives. For me, some of the types of jobs Standard did also stand out. He seemed to enjoy being in positions of power, including high-level management positions, which he probably wasn't qualified for, but probably talked himself into, because he didn't last in them for very long. He was also a security guard at several points during his life, which is often a position that those with a craving for power, control and authority over others will gravitate to if they cannot become police officers or similar. His long-distance truck driving for me is the most disturbing, because it really gave him significant access to sex workers in many different parts of the country who often frequents truck stops, and then he could either dump his victims somewhere far from where they were picked up, which would confuse an investigation, or he could simply move on himself and possibly never be identified. We'll never really know where the stander actually did use this to his advantage anyway, and perhaps those victims just haven't been tied to him yet. Stando was around the age where we do see serial offenders starting to kill. It's often a progression from rape in sexually motivated murders, and we know that he was accused of rape in Vintuk, not long before the murders started in Abacha. This is another pattern we often see with sexual offenders. They will commit rapes until they're charged or arrested or convicted for one, and then when released, they decide that future victims will not be around to tell the tale. We have certainly seen that time and again, and it's another reason we need to be so careful when releasing any sexual offenders on parole, even if they are not yet a serial offender. We also know that serial murderers are often triggered by some stressful events in their lives, or something they see as stressful. Hanukom noted that Standa seemed to have a very low view of women, and although it's difficult to know exactly when that started with him and why, 
It's entirely possible that finding out he was adopted and then finding out that his biological mother was deceased was one of the triggers that contributed psychologically to him starting to kill. His victim selection is actually rare for South Africa in a criminological sense, although it fits with his racial profile as a serial offender in our country. Although in other countries sex workers are some of the most frequently selected victims for serial murderers because they are vulnerable, in South Africa, as I've mentioned before, we have such a large population of vulnerable people for many other reasons, poverty, unemployment, etc., that sadly serial murderers here have a much greater pool of vulnerable people to pick from. With that said, Dr. Labaskakni noted that in his research, almost all of the white male serial murderers in South Africa have targeted sex workers in their crimes. Of course, we don't know exactly why this is, but I do wonder if it's a scar from our own past racial segregation in this country, where under ordinary circumstances, females of color would be more wary of white males than males of their own race, unless they're in the sex trade, when these men would then essentially be their clients, and they would go with them willingly, at least at first, to conduct a transaction. There could be a myriad of reasons for this, but I do find it very interesting how deeply socioeconomic, political, and historical factors play into the criminological elements of any country. It's almost impossible to separate the two. Although Stunder's case is interesting for many reasons, it is also just extremely tragic. In my research for this and other episodes, I once again came across horrifying statistics about the number of sex workers who are murdered in South Africa. Sadly, because these murders are very often what we call stranger murders, because these women are meeting these men for the first time at the point of their interaction, they're also incredibly difficult to solve. And only really when we get to situations where an offender is killing more than one sex worker in very specific ways, where a series can be identified, do we see these cases being solved. Lee-Anne Rondkanga and Nozolo Noia were young moms trying to make a living and feed their children. There are many reasons why women and men get involved in the sex trade, and this is one of the most common. Sheer desperation. While there certainly are women and men who choose to work as sex workers because they enjoy the work, that is certainly not true for the vast majority of those involved in the trade. If there was a choice, any other viable choice, they would take the other option. Both Leanne and Nozolo were in their 20s. I have had the privilege of living almost twice as long as both of them. And let me tell you, I wouldn't even recognize the person I was in my 20s now. The labels that they were given in court, victim, sex worker, were just part of a snapshot in time in their lives, and had they not crossed paths with Rian Stander, 
who knows where they may be now. But truly, their value did not lie in their potential. It didn't lie in the possibility that they may be able to one day work a job that society didn't frown upon because society wasn't feeding their kids. They were. Leanne and Nozolo's value as human beings was inherent from the day they were born to their own mothers, who would have also had to lay them to rest for the last time. Their value did not increase or decrease based on what they did to earn money or even any of the other roles they may have played. They were just valuable, as Leanne and Nozolo. And as far as value to the world goes, theirs far outweighs, at least in my mind, the man who decided that they were dispensable for his own pleasure. Leanne Rondhanger, Nozolo Nguia, Resgente. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.